Good evening. What's a person in mourning look like? What's a person in mourning look like? I thought about that question and some pretty easy answers pop into my mind. Someone wearing black who has pale skin, eyes downcast, maybe a trembling lip and a tear on the cheek. That's what I kind of expect a person to look like who's mourning. The harder question to answer is what does someone in mourning feel like? Isn't that more difficult to put into words? Because then we're dealing with the heart. We're dealing with emotions. And we could say that that they're sad. We could say that they're hurt. You might think of words like empty and withered for how a person might feel when they're in mourning. Joel's prophecy calls Judah to mourn. And I want you to look with me at the book of Joel in the Old Testament just after the book of Hosea. Joel's prophecy calls Judah to mourn. God was bringing judgment on them. They needed to repent and come back to Him. But before God could bless them, they needed to change on the inside. They needed to mourn inside like they were on the outside. And they needed to mourn over the right things. In Joel chapter 2 verse 13, there's a key passage for tonight's lesson. Joel chapter 2 and verse 13 says, And rend your heart and not your garments. In those days, if we asked what does a person in mourning look like, you would have described someone who tore their clothes. Someone who rent their garments over their difficulty, over their turmoil. And that's what the rending of the garments was intended to show. Is that inside there was turmoil. Inside there was difficulty and mourning happening. But it seems that the people of Judah had become adept at tearing those garments but they forgot that that was supposed to symbolize something on the inside. And they'd left the inside out of the equation, rending their garments and not their heart. And so when God calls them back in Joel 2, verse 12 and 13, He tells them instead to rend their heart and not their garments. Start on the inside. Start on the inside. Tonight we're going to look at the things that the people mourned. We're going to look at what was happening in Judah at the time Joel was written and how that might translate today. So let's look at Joel chapter 1 now. Joel chapter 1, and we're going to read the first four verses. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. So something grand has happened. Something that has never been experienced by them before. 
something, in this case, terrible. Something they didn't want to forget because it was so terrible. And in verse 4, Joel describes exactly what had happened. He says, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Locusts have been sent from the Lord and have destroyed the land of Judah. Now, I did some looking because if you're like me, I think of locusts and I don't think of very much, really. They don't seem that intimidating to me. Uh, I just, I don't think much of them. But if you look, there's been some studies done about locusts. And NASA reported some figures about them. They said that a swarm of locusts can be as big as 460 square miles. If you're looking for a frame of reference, some way to gauge that in your mind like I was, the city of Sacramento is about 100 square miles. And so you could have a city four times the size of Sacramento that is easily covered by a swarm of locusts. A swarm that size can eat somewhere around 423 million pounds of vegetation a day. That's enough food to feed 40,000 people for a year. Gone. In one day. That's what was sent on Judah. That's what the Lord had sent to them as a form of judgment for what they'd been doing. And I might ask you if that was the case in America. If our source of everything that we live on was eaten and destroyed by locusts, what would you be mourning over? Starting with verse 5, Awake drunkards and weep and wail all you wine drinkers. Why? On account of the sweet wine that's cut off from your mouth. So the, the wine drinkers and the drunkards, they're weeping because the wine is gone. No more wine no more drinking. Verse 9. Verse 9. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord. And so you've got the priests and the ministers mourning. It's possible that they are truly saddened that there can be no more sacrifice to the Lord. But it may have to do in this case more with the fact that they received some of that sacrifice themselves so that they could eat and have sustenance in life. They may be mourning more over that than over the fact that sacrifice wasn't being made. In verse 10, the field is ruined, the land mourns. That's an interesting thing to study. If you've ever wanted to, to, to look at that, take a look at what the land does in the Bible. It's a very interesting thought. Uh, you can follow that or not. But uh, the land, it says, mourns. The field is ruined. The grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. That's all the things they needed to live on. And so the land was mourning. Verse 11, Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, For the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field, is destroyed. So the harvest is gone. So the farmers and the vine dressers, they're all wailing. 
In verse 12, the vine dries up, the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, all the trees of the field dry up, indeed rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. They are saddened greatly because all the food is gone. Have you ever been at a buffet where the food ran out? That's the worst. That's the worst. Because you, you, you're there to eat and they say eat all you can and, and then there's no more food and what do you start do? You start weeping, right? <laughs> we don't like when there's no food left. That's why Thanksgiving is such a good holiday. They were mourning over the loss of all that food. Everything they lived on is gone. And then as you look in verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Or verse 13 he says, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And so instead of wailing over the loss of food, they should fast as a nation. Shouldn't be that hard now, should it? All the food's gone. So they should have a solemn assembly to gather and cry out as a nation to the Lord. There's been a seldom few times when our nation has done that. But it always makes a big impact when a nation comes together to cry out to the Lord. You know, the same could be said for our congregation. That it would be a powerful thing when there is a major issue or a major problem that we're facing as the people of God standing in the world of darkness. If we came together and proclaimed a fast and spent time in prayer together. Crying out to the Lord. As they were supposed to turn to Him, they needed some reminders. Maybe some correction. Joel, in Joel chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, describes a great army. And we're going to cover that in a later lesson. We're going to look at that army. But it seems like he's identifying and describing all these locusts that have come in and that will continue to come in if they refuse to return. And in verse 12 though, God says, Yet even now, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. And so verse 13 becomes the center point for the people of Judah in the book of Joel. They ought to rend their hearts and not their garments. And the question to us is, does your heart ache? And what does it ache about? Think back to the last time that your heart really ached over something. What was it? Answer to yourself. 
What was it that you really ached over, that you lost sleep over, that really tore you up inside? What is that thing? And is it to do with your mission for God? Or is it to do with some physical thing that was just on your mind, a desire you might have had? I'm not saying that either of those is wrong, but we need to consider if time and time again our turmoil inside comes from physical things rather than from spiritual concern. The people of God were being punished in Joel. They were being punished for sin. But it's all so easy to put your mind on the consequence physically that the food was gone, the land was destroyed, instead of considering what might have caused it. What sin needs to be corrected so that we will again be blessed by the Lord? There's another side of this as well that we need to discuss. I'm sorry, my, my eyes are getting something in them. Uh, so, there's another side to this. And that's the side of spiritual repentance. Uh, here the people were told to rend their hearts and not their garments. The idea is that when they needed to spiritually repent, they would repent on the outside so that everyone could see. But then the inside that God could see wasn't matching, wasn't matching up. So God says, forget about the outside for a minute and rend your heart instead. The outside should be a result of the inside. There's some examples of this that are good to remember. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1, and I want to look especially at verse 11. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. And this is the place where David has heard that Saul died. Saul went out to battle and he died. And if you recall, Saul is not a, uh, a, a, you know, Saul and David, they didn't really get along. Uh, Saul tried to kill David multiple times, chased him through wilderness and tried to find him over and over again. And David was delivered from him every time. But when Saul died, 2 Samuel chapter 1 Verse 10, the Amalekite says, So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head, and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. He's talking to David. He's brought him the spoils of the death of Saul, who he considers to be David's great enemy. But David took hold of his clothes, verse 11, and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And so, David tore his clothes because in his heart... He was torn. Because even though Saul was his mortal enemy, he loved him. Another good example of the tearing of clothes comes in Genesis 44. Look at Genesis chapter 44 and all of the things that motivate the tearing of the clothes. <clears throat> Genesis 44. You remember Joseph. Joseph, the one who 
was sold into Egyptian bondage by his brothers. He became a ruler, and there was a famine in the land. And so his brothers were sent to him for food, and they didn't recognize him when they saw him. And so Joseph plays a little game with them. He sends them back and forth a couple times, giving them different things. And in this case, in Genesis 44, about verse 10, there was a silver cup that had been placed in the grain sack of Benjamin. And so they've been accused, those brothers, of taking that. And of course, Joseph knows they have it even though they don't. And so in verse 10, he said, let it be according to your words. He, who, he with whom it's found shall be my slave. The rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And then they tore their clothes. And when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. That's important in the story of Joseph. You see, the games that Joseph was playing with his brothers were a sort of test for them. When they came back, they told the story of their aged father who didn't want to send Benjamin because he feared for him and he was the last living son from Rachel who he loved. But he sent him because Joseph had requested it And if they should return without Benjamin, surely their father would die. And so one of the brothers pleads, pleads with Joseph. Pleads with him for his brother's life, for the life of their father. They all tore their clothes because internally they cared for their brother. Like they should have cared for Joseph so long ago. When Joseph realized how much they had learned to care, that is when in chapter 45 he couldn't control himself, sent everyone away, wept with his brothers. The tearing of the clothes became a good symbol. But not all the time does the outward showing of mourning and remorse mean that there is actually anything going on inside. Look at Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 verse 49. Jesus has been called to go to an official's house because his daughter is nearing death. And they're hoping to save her. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 49, Jesus has just healed another woman. And in verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. 
When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. So the multitude stays away and just these few go in. And they were all weeping. That's the mourners who had gathered. You see, there were professionals at this. Professional mourners who they would hire to come and cry and and offer you their weeping and wailing to make you feel as though someone cares. And so they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, stop weeping, for she's not died but is asleep. And notice how out of character this verse is. They began laughing. They began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. Now Jesus calls her to rise and she is made well. But focus on the mourners. Focus on the ones who were there weeping. Get a real good picture in your mind of what that looks like. The loud weeping, the loud wailing. Making a large to-do, big deal out of this girl's death. Just fawning over her and every time that anyone gets close who cares, the weeping gets louder and louder. And then Jesus says, no, she's... She's going to be okay. And then the waterworks turn off. And the sad faces turn into grins. And laughter ensues. You ever seen a child like that? Who can just turn off the waterworks right away? Sociopaths. (laughs) Isn't there a problem there that needs to be fixed? Don't you recognize that when you're raising a child that when they can just turn that off right away, that tells you there's a problem that needs to be fixed. They've learned to do some things that they need to forget. Same thing spiritually. Same thing spiritually. What does your morning look like? And I'm not talking about the beginning of the day. Is it just noise and water? Or does your heart wail with the person who needs your help? Does your heart wail and force tears from your eyes when you find yourself in the wrong? Don't just rend your garments. Rend your heart. And you know... 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 talks about a seared conscience. And I'm dreadfully afraid of that. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 says, The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. The imagery is very plain. It's someone who can't feel the wrongness of wrong anymore. And I'm afraid of becoming that person. I think we all need to be afraid of becoming that person. Because when we do wrong and we sin and we just don't feel anything because of it. That's when we really need to start spending some time rending our hearts. 
And I know that may sound strange to think of or you wonder how you might do that. I'll tell you the way that works for me. When I find that I've made some mistakes and I didn't didn't care at the time, it's time for me to sit alone in prayer and talk out loud to God about what I've done and how much I've hurt Him and what I know my soul means to Him. And how much He cares for me. And how ungrateful I've been. And how much I want to please Him. And beg for His forgiveness. So that I might walk with Him again. Rend your heart. Spend time. Spend time in prayer. Confessing to God. And then when a brother or sister requests your help, oh, be there for them. Be there for them. Rend your heart for them. Be emotionally invested in your brothers, in your sisters. Be emotionally invested in your own relationship with God. We have to be emotionally invested in Christianity and all aspects of it. If you've gotten into the habit of giving no time to repentance or weeping with your brethren, you know, not giving time to weep with them when they need it, Romans 12, 15, it's time to start rending the heart. It's time to tear that open, make it tender again. That's a beautiful thing that God commands them to do. We know that whatever God commands us to do, that we we actually can do it. Otherwise, He wouldn't command it of us. And so when He says to rend your heart, we know that we can. We just have to care enough to do it. Be willing to go through the pain and the sorrow that that will bring. Because all the things you've kept bottled up inside of there are going to come flowing out. But you've got to do it. You've got to. Otherwise, everything's just an outside show. Just a rending of the garments. In Joel chapter 2, last verse, Joel chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. If the people would come back, if the people would consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather and weep and cry out to the Lord. Verse 18, Then the Lord will be zealous for His land and will have pity on His people. The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil. You will be satisfied in full with them and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. That's the result of a torn heart. A heart that is made tender because we care enough to tear it open so that God can get in again. He will bless the one who does that. Here He promises a very physical blessing. We understand that while physical blessings are guaranteed for our needs, and especially when we depend on and are close to the church, the real blessings come spiritually. Those are the ones that matter more. The ones of forgiveness. The ones of eternal life. Those are the things that God guarantees to us today when we'll return to Him. 
So if you're a Christian tonight who needs to repent before the Lord, we invite you to make that return in our presence tonight. And if you're not a Christian, but you understand the path to salvation presented by the gospel, and you're ready to leave your sins behind and dedicate yourself to Jesus Christ in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins in His name, the invitation is also for you. But if you have any spiritual need tonight, we're here for you. We're here to help you and tear our hearts open with you. We care about you that much. And so please, if you have any spiritual need tonight, make it known by coming forward as we stand and sing.